Bros and TKOs, we are live. Episode 32 on this beautiful Wednesday evening. I'm your host, Shane Gillette, and we're going to jump into anything and everything MMA. And a little bit of a shorter show because there is no events this weekend to preview, so we're just going to break down the first pay-per-view of the year, UFC 297. We're going to talk about what happened at the ADCX2 grappling event, the um, fights that have been booked, a lot of good stuff, everything MMA. So let's jump right in. In some fights that have been booked, we have Kennedy and Sheka Kwu versus Ovince St. Peru, um, March 16th. I want to just make sure I didn't murder that. I put OSP. I obviously know who OSP is. Ovince St. Peru. Yep, I got it right. You know, got it locked in the bank. Uh, but a very good light heavyweight showdown veteran versus a young massively long big upcoming stud on that march 16th fight night card in vegas um a couple more fights have been booked on that fight night we have Panny kianzad and macy chiasin on march 16th so that's going to be great we have uh josan nunez and chelsea chandler recently booked so two really good uh fights on the women's and and the mma two veterans clashing we got GM3 Gerald Mearshart and Brian Barbarena. A little bit of Bam Bam action. That's always a great thing to tune into on March 16th. Um, on the other fight night card, we have another light heavyweight showdown. Vitor Petrino versus Tyson Pedro, March 2nd. Uh, two good upcoming light heavyweights. And then there was the UFC 300 Chaos we recorded last Tuesday, put the podcast out last Wednesday. Right after I put this out, there was updates by Dana White, the one that we were all hoping for. We got Justin Gaethje, Max Holloway, UFC 300 in lightweight. Max Holloway's going up from featherweight to lightweight. And this isn't just a regular scrap. This is for the BMF title, the baddest mother effer on the planet. Five-round event. We get five rounds of straight carnage chaos. Banger. Can't wait for that. And also announced at UFC 300 in a surprise announcement last night. We have Holly Holm, one of the more veteran OGs in the sport, really took over after her defeat of Ronda Rousey. She's taking on PFL superstar Kayla Harrison at bantamweight. This will be the first time Kayla Harrison's cutting down to bantamweight. A lot of headlines here. She beats Holly Holm. I would assume she's going to be fighting for the title and uh, may encourage Chris Cyborg to come. I know Chris Cyborg said she would like to fight Amanda Nunez. Plus, Amanda Nunez now might have some intrigue to come out of retirement. The whole thing, really, when it came to PFL and Bellator, there's a couple names here and there. Vadim Nemkov for me, Johnny Eblen, um, some of those dudes. The Pitbull brothers, the Frieri brothers. Then there is um, um, uh, Anthony Pettis' little brother from Bellator. Uh, guys that you thought could compete at the UFC. But really it was Kayla Harrison trying to get her in against Cyborg or, or Nunez and some of the elite in women's MMA. And she, the problem was she fought at 145 pounds, which did not exist in the UFC. Uh, bantamweight being the heavier um, category. And um, 
really didn't make sense because there was no fighters there. You know, they gave Nunez the, the champ champ status, the double belts. And especially with Nunez in retirement, um, you did not expect this to happen. I guess the PFL was trying to lock her into a cyborg fight for the PFL. But for me, you know, Kayla Harrison's gone through uh, quite the ringer recently with the PFL. Um, don't get me wrong. She had her moment of shine, got paid, but she's 33 years old now. She's not a spring chicken. Obviously, she's a lot younger than Holly Holm, but to have to cut down for the first time in her professional career and come to the UFC, fight higher level competition, and she already lost to um, the champ champ in PFL, um, Larissa Pacheco, and she'd already beat Pacheco once, lost to her. Pacheco now has two belts in PFL. So it's like, I don't know. I, I feel like the, the star's not as bright as it could have been. I'm still very excited. Props to Dane and the UFC for making this happen. You know, this isn't a splashy, I don't know. It could have been a lot more splashy a couple of years ago. It's for UFC 300. I'm more excited about, obviously, the Gaethje Holloway BMF title, five-round affair, other fights on the UFC 300 card. Still, this is a huge success for the UFC, huge success for Kayla Harrison. I just think it's a little, a little, too little, too late. We'll see what happens. If they could get Cyborg in, they could get Amanda Nunez in, then things get more interesting. But this is like Floyd Mayweather, Manny Pacquiao that happened way too long ago. I mean, Chris Cyborg at this point in time, she is 38 years old. Amanda Nunez is 35 years old. And Holly Holm, who is fighting is 42 years old, although she is an amazing in-shape legend. It just feels like, you know, a missed opportunity. Pacquiao, Mayweather, a little bit too little too late. But either way, super exciting. Makes the headlines very interest, interesting. And I would assume we're still missing the main event. But we also had booked Diego Lopez, Sadiq Youssef. I mean, two guys that are just straight chaos in the octagon stylistically will be a ton of fun. That's a must-see banger as well. But I would say at most, two more fights on this card, maybe just the main event. Bilal Muhammad, um, Leon Edwards hasn't been booked on this. That's what I thought was going to be on here. Now that DDP won, is it a chance that he could fight Israel? Adesanya is the main event. Alex Pereira potentially with an opponent. We will see, but the UFC 300 seems to be fully built out. And I skipped one. We have the OGs going down, which I did not expect this, especially after the call-outs. We get Jim Miller and Bobby Green. I mean, you want to talk about two guys that are going to sit in the pocket and throw down. These two dudes are going to do it for their careers, their legacies, and for the sport. So US, UFC 300 getting a lot of high-quality fights. You know, maybe missing the mega superstar Conor McGregor or big names like that. But this is definitely better than the 200 or 100 card or anything um, really that's been out there. And UFC 299 gets its last fight added, to my assumption anyways. We got Joanne Wood and Marina Moroz, who's becoming a, buddy, a, um, a blossoming superstar in the women's MMA. So uh, I was supposed to see JoJo in Salt Lake City when the shocker of Justin Gaethje's head kick to Dustin Poirier, uh, she couldn't make that fight. So I think this is like the second or third time I'm supposed to see her live. She was also supposed to be in a, 
Las Vegas fight and it got called off the day of. Someone was sick or something. So really hoping to see her finally. Um, and then April getting some more cards. Well, I guess there was another couple in March. We got Billy Quarantillo versus Gabriel Miranda, March 23rd. Was hoping for a little bit higher ranked opponent for Billy Q. Uh, but either way, he's always great to see in the octagon. And then another injury swap. We have Alonzo Menafield replacing Dominic Reyes in against Carlos Olberg, March 30th. Which I'm still excited for that fight. Alonzo has been running through dudes. But I really wanted to see Dominic Reyes back in. I haven't looked up the specifics. Good thing I have the internet right here. Let's see. If it's an injury or what it is. It says Dominic Reyes. He hasn't revealed why. So, you know, as much in and out he's been and the lack of consistency in the octagon, definitely a head scratcher. You hope the best for Dominic. But Alonzo Menafield and Carlos Olberg are going to be throwing bombs all night long. And then we have uh, Ariana Lipsky and Kareen Silva. March or April 27th, and also another woman's match, Cynthia Cavillo. Uh, wasn't sure if we'd see her in the UFC again or not against Piera Rodriguez, April 6th. Other than that, we had another injury replacement. Really bummed about this. I really wanted to see Lerone Murphy up his level of competition. He is now injured and out of his fight against Dan Ige, uh, February 10th. So here in a couple weeks. Insert Andre Feely. Andre, a stud. Washington boy, love to watch him. Um, a, a, a massive opportunity, short notice affair for him. Really bummed about Leron. I, I really wanted to see where he stood in the rankings. Um, and then Anthony Hernandez is going to fight Roman Kopolov, who is replacing Ikram Alaskarov on the next pay-per-view, UFC 298. Anthony uh, Hernandez and Andre Feely getting massive opportunities. Um, Roman Kopolov doing this on short notice. He had a very nice knockout in Salt Lake City on a short notice fill-in fight. So really excited about the, the fill-in fighters. Bummed for the, for the guys that had a chance. Um, but that is the world of mixed martial arts. And this, I believe, came from Tom Aspinall. But Stipe Miocic had declined a fight with Tom Aspinall for UFC 300 to wait for John Jones. So you could see that they were trying to do stuff to put the uh, a massive main event stamp on this card. Would have loved to see that, but I, I guess I don't really blame Stipe as I think him and John both retire after that fight anyways. Now before we break down 297, we got the official Hall of Fame introduction of the legend. I mean the legend, one of the OGs, a guy who broke my heart with the win over BJ Penn, my first favorite UFC fighter. But we get Frankie Edgar inducted into the MMA Hall of Fame. I mean, 100% well-deserved. I mean, Frankie Edgar was one of those dudes. He's from Jersey, super blue collar. Wasn't the biggest dude, the fastest dude, the strongest dude. Never was elite. You know, maybe his wrestling, you could put him in elite category. But didn't have those intangibles. And just outworked dudes for years. Started in the ring of combat back in 2006. Shit, I was just starting high school. And then in 2007, came into the UFC. 
He beat Jim Miller in reality fighting right before the UFC. Him and Jim, man, uh, came into the UFC with a unanimous decision victory over Tyson Griffin, fight of the night. Got three wins in a row. Fought Gray Maynard, who was a world beater at the time. Lost to him via decision. Rattled off five more wins in a row, including guys like Sean Shirk, BJ Penn, back-to-back, where he won the lightweight championship and in the rematch defended the championship, both unanimous decision victories, and then had two more fights with Gray Maynard, had a split decision draw, um, and then uh, knocked him out in the fourth round in 2011. Suffered three losses in a row, two back-to-back against Benson Henderson, where he lost the the title um, and and, um, uh, lost his opportunity to get it back. So he won the title against BJ Penn, defended it against BJ Penn, retained it because of the draw, fought Gray Maynard again, and defended it via knockout, lost it to Benson. Benson got a rematch. Uh, Benson got to keep it. Then he fought Jose Aldo for the featherweight championship, lost to Jose Aldo, beat Charles Oliveira, which is, honestly, I, I need to look at that fight back. That's pretty wild. Back in 2013, Beat BJ uh, Penn again from the Ultimate Fighter. Beat Cub Swanson, Uriah Faber, Chad Mendez. Lost to Jose Aldo again for his last, um, or for another shot at the Featherweight Championship. This time it was the interim at UFC 200. Beat Jeremy Stevens. Beat a very young Yair Rodriguez. This is in 2017. Lost to Brian Ortega. Beat Cub Swanson. Had another shot for the featherweight championship against Max Holloway. Lost to Max. Lost to the Korean Zombie. Uh, went to bantamweight and fought Pedro Munoz. And then ended his career with back-to-back losses against Chris Gutierrez, Marlon Vera, where he was doing work, and Corey Sanhagen. I mean, if we think of generations of mixed martial arts, this guy did it. Um, I guess I never realized how many rematches that he went through with Gray Maynard, BJ Penn, and Benson Henderson. And Jose Aldo, if you think of those names alone, I mean, this is some of the most baddest dudes on the planet at the time. Benson Henderson, 2012. Gray Maynard, 2011. Jose Aldo, 2013 through 2016. I mean, come on. He beat Uriah Faber, Chad Mendes, Cub Swanson, uh, BJ Penn three times. Charles Oliveira. I mean, geez, Jim Miller. Whew, I, this guy did anything and everything. Should he even fought Cub Swanson twice, two wins. Lost to Holloway, Marlon Vera, Corey Sanhang, and the new generation. But shit, all the way to 2021, that fight against Marlon Vera, he had that fight won until he got the front kick knockout, one of the more devastating knockouts. Uh, but he had three successful title defenses at lightweight. Um, he had fight of the night eight times. Um... Tied for the second most fight of the night bonuses in UFC history with eight of them things. Tied with Nate Diaz and Dustin the Diamond Poirier. He has the second longest total fight time in the octagon. Seven hours and 57 minutes, just under eight hours. Um, 2010 fighter of the year, 2010 upset of the year against BJ. Still breaks my heart to this day. He was a reality fighting champion with a successful title defense. Back in Sherdog's old awards, 2011 Fight of the Year against Gray Maynard, 2011 and 14 All-Violence Team, 2017 Beatdown of the Year against Yair Rodriguez, the 
the way the UFC's aged and where Yair is today, kind of wild to think about that. Um, and 2012 fight of the year against Benson Henderson at UFC 144. Um, 11 wins via finish of his 24 wins, seven knockouts, four submission wins, five of his six losses via knockout. Was in the UFC from 27 to 2022. I mean, can't do it much better than that. The hardest working dude, well-spoken, grit all about it, jersey all over him, bleeds jersey. Bravo, Frankie. Edgar, whoo! All right, let's talk a little grappling. We have the ADC X2. This is the new grappling Dubai League. I love it. A lot of ex-UFCers. There's gi competition, no gi competition. Some of the best in the world. You know, I am not a gi specialist of high-level competition. If I watch grappling, it's a lot of the fight pass, invitational stuff like this with ex-UFC dudes. I practice jujitsu myself. Got to get my consistency back in there um, so I could speak higher, you know, with a higher IQ about some of the jujitsu things we see in the octagon. Plus, it's good for me, you know, good good to keep me in shape, those kinds of things. But I am not a student of gi jujitsu. I'm not out there watching film, watching gi competitions. I watch a lot of this ex-grappling. This is mostly a UFC show, but MMA show. So we'll stick with the MMA-based grappling. But um, this was the second one. They already have the third one booked for March. Actually, I think I have notes in here. ADC, ADXC3, March 2nd. Um, so it looks like they're going to be putting these on damn near once a month, which bravo to them. They, um, in the post-event interview, talked about some of the people they have in the competition. They were breaking news on fights there, and it's like, man, However, they're getting this set up and the connections they have with these fighters and, and the level of uh, grapplers they have, very, very impressive. Um, but let's just talk about it. So we had Aljamain Sterling in the main event against Chase Hooper. I do believe this was a catchweight bout. I did not confirm it because Aljamain posted on X, formerly known as Twitter, about not wanting to cut weight and just showing up, putting on a show, you know, making it a little bit of loose fun, I believe. Chase Hooper, the young Chase Hooper, obliged. But Aljo defeated him via split decision. Fion Davis defeated uh, UFC fighter Luana Pinheiro in the first round via rear naked choke. We had the very talented Renat Fakhradinov defeating Douglas Lima via unanimous decision. I wish I could have saw this. I know they have some streaming service that they're showing these on. I think you got to pay for it. Um, I would love to watch some of these. We had Sydney Outlaw defeating Terrence McKinney via crossface round one. Uh, so great um, grappling event. Lots of other bouts on this, but this was the uh, MMA heavy grappling uh, names in these events. I mean, Bellator, Sydney Outlaw, Terrence McKinney. Think about that. Douglas Lima versus Renat in the UFC. Very fun to think about. If you would tell a hardcore MMA fan or UFC fan like myself, that these things will be casually happening in between UFC cards, I would be like, what a world we live in. I mean, this is great. All the action, all the time. These guys now, they have the UFC PI. They could come up from wrestling or whatever their backgrounds are. Literally have a boot camp. Okay, you want to work on your game or really work on grappling in between fights? Now you could go to ADXC. 
You can do other grappling events, fight pass invitationals. The talent level is going to keep on rising in MMA and the UFC. And I'm just hyped about it. I'm excited to be a part of a part of it. Tell some fighter stories, get some fighters in and, and talk more about it because uh, the level of fighting is next level already. I can't wait to see what it gets to. The UFC earlier today finally announced that the new Saudi Arabia date for their card will be June 22nd. They did want to have it, I believe, in March. Pushed it back because they were lacking uh, some of the big names that they were trying to book. But I, I guess timelines, it didn't make sense. So in this statement, uh, it said that they were planning on having a world-class card. And Dana, in quotes, said that this will be one of the best cards the UFC's ever put on. Every fight must see TV. So watch out. Um, I'm not too sure how he's going to accomplish that. Right on the heels after that is the International Fight Week in Vegas. We have UFC 300 in April. It's going to be fun to see how that shakes out. And then lastly, here pretty soon we have the super card for PFL. Ex-Bellator champions taking on PFL champions. And Megomed, Megomed Kiramov, the PFL champion, is going to, or the Bellator champion, is going to um, have to be replaced via injury. So Ray Cooper the third is going to step in for Megomed in that superstar or champion versus champion showdown. Now, uh, UFC 297 in Toronto. What a card this was. Lots of Canadian talent on the card. My picks overall, not a great night in the office. I went five for five on my picks. At least I'm still 500 or above. So that puts me at 13 and 7 this year uh, on picks. 206 wins, 93 losses, and three no contests or draws since Bose and TKO's 32 episodes in. So more than double the wins. Not mad about it. Some good fights that we did not break down. The young Sam Patterson with a total domination effort got a round one rear naked choke over Johan Liness. And, um, yeah, I mean, Johan, uh, was in over his head, wasn't able to show out for the Canadian fans, show out for the Canadian fighters. And there is news that he has since been released from the UFC. Uh, that happened pretty quick. I don't know if his contract's up and they already said, no, we're not doing it or what, but yeah, I mean, I'm not too surprised after that performance been a tough go for him. And then we had the ultimate or the Dana White contender series rematch. We had the underdog, Ramon Tavares, with a split decision win over Serhei Sidi in the rematch. What a back-and-forth affair that was. One of the uh, handful of very close split decision victories. Well done for the underdog, Ramon Tavares. Canada overall, 2-6 and six on the night. Brutal night for the Canadian fighters. But let's jump in in the early prelims. We had Jimmy Flick with a round two submission via arm triangle choke. That's my favorite jujitsu choke over Malcolm Gordon. Um, Johan had lost. Malcolm looked like he was going to get the win. I mean, Jimmy won in the most Jimmy way possible in this fight. If you've seen Jimmy Flick fight, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, Malcolm was clearly the only fighter with UFC level striking in this fight. And he was taking it to Jimmy. So much so that he probably gassed himself out and was a little too aggressive looking to get the finish. Somehow, Jimmy was able to make it to round two. 
after getting teed off on. And then Malcolm was like, all right, dude, I gotcha. You can't strike. And he just went for the finish, a bat out of hell. And if we could give Jimmy props about anything but his jujitsu and submission ability, it's that he could take some shots. Uh, he's a tough dude. I mean, Malcolm was giving him his best shots, straight head shots, no defense whatsoever, and went for broke trying to get the finish after rocking Jimmy multiple times. And when you do that at this level, you can put yourself in a bad position. You can gas yourself out. And Jimmy was able to find a way to get on top. Once he did, Gordon, you know, you could see his chest moving, his breathing out of his mouth. He was in a bad, bad shape. He, he literally was exhausted. And Jimmy was able to get that arm triangle choke, get the submission. Uh, what a turn of events this was. We saw a couple of these um, in the worst of ways for Canada fighters in this evening. Statistically, this will kind of tell the story here. Malcolm landed 74 total strikes, 37 of them significant. He had a takedown and a submission attempt. Jimmy's total, seven total strikes. That's almost 70 less. He had three only significant, and he had only one takedown and four attempts, so he wasn't even successful at that. But he did have four submission attempts, ended up getting the one after total exhaustion. So Jimmy ends his two-fight losing streak. Probably saved his UFC career. I know in the post-fight press conference, Dana said he would be open uh, to the idea of re-signing Jimmy after that win. And he is now 3-2 and two in the UFC. So overall, not, not terrible. Malcolm now extends his losing streak to three. And he has posted on social media, which, you know, right after a fight, you never know what this is. But he had posted that he will be retiring from the UFC, which means he finished his career with a 2-5 and five UFC record. But he really did fight a lot of good talent from his promotion or in the promotion after he moved up from TKO. So, well, you know, great career if that officially is the end for you, Malcolm. Tough way to go out. It would have been great, I'm sure, if you were planning on retiring to go out with a, 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 a great finish. And maybe that's why... He gassed himself out trying to do the damn thing, but you hate to see a retirement on the home crowd after a loss. So what I'd like to see next for Jimmy, how about uh, Carlos Hernandez? I think that would be a solid scrap. Uh, another, you know, get back in, in order kind of fight for Jimmy because he does need to work on his striking if he expects to live in the UFC much longer. Rounding out in the early prelims, we had back-to-back -back Canada wins here. We had Jasmine Jossadavicius with a round three submission via Anaconda Choke over Priscilla Cohera. Performance of the night, 50 Gs. Let's go, Canada. You, you had hope after this one. I mean, Jasmine completely dominated this fight after 30 seconds in, and it went almost exactly how I expected it to. This was the most dominating, bloodied carnage of the night. After the Gordon loss, you know, Jasmine pulled through for Canada. Probably the best win for Canada on the evening. Jossa Davicius called Priscilla out. I think in the post-fight interview or maybe on social media for not making weight. They actually fought at a catch weight, the higher weight class, 10 pounds heavier at bantamweight for women's, which is 135. And that... 
because she did that and she's not a professional and doesn't take this seriously, she was going to make her pay. And golly, did she? I mean, that's exactly what happened. After amazing amount of ground and pound, full body mounts just teeing off on her, elbows coming down over the course of two rounds, blood shooting out of her head, the octagon bloody for the rest of the evening. Jasmine finally, I don't know if she finally got the submission or if she wanted to make the fight last and make her feel some pain to finally submit her in the third because she did say that she thought about finishing it in the first but was like, you know what? I'm going to make this girl feel it and make her go through hell. So what a performance. The octagon was full of blood the rest of the night. Statistically, I mean, this is as about as lopsided as it gets. Jasmine landed 326. Yes, that's correct. 326 total strikes, 93 of them significant. She had two takedowns and five attempts, three submission attempts, and more than two rounds of control time, 11 minutes of control time with a knockdown. And Priscilla only landed 26 total strikes, 24 of them significant. So Jasmine starts a new winning streak. She is 3-1 and one since 2023 alone. Four fights, and a year and some change. She's on a roll. She enters the top 15. Finally, she is deserving of that at number 15. And Priscilla ends her, extends her losing streak to two. She is somehow, though, 2-2 two and two since 2022. So what's next for these ladies? Give me Jasmine and Montana De La Rosa. That would be a fantastic matchup. Two of the same similar style fighters. And for Priscilla, how about a scrap with Ivana Petrovic? That would be the one for me. Now, like I said, back-to-back wins for Canadian women. Kicking off the prelims, Jillian Robertson with a round two TKO over Poliana Viana. Another performance of the night, 50 Gs for the Canadian ladies. And much like the last, not quite as brutal, but you want to talk about domination. Jillian kept the Canadian women riding high in the prelims. She was on top for majority of the fight, got takedowns at will, and uh, had more than a round of uh, control time with six minutes of control time and barely over a round and some change, maybe a couple of minutes of fight time. Statistically, Jillian landed 49 total strikes, 23 of them significant. She was two for two in takedown attempts, and she went for broke with them. Her and um, Jasmine both, like if you're going for the takedown, they were, you know, if they, they shot, so let's say we have our octagon, big circle. She starts here, her opponent's here. She is now stretching out for a double leg or going for it. And she they pushed her their opponents all the way to the other side of the octagon. If they needed to cover the whole damn canvas to get the takedown, they were going for it. And brilliantly so, they were able to have success there. Jillian also had a submission attempt. And you love to see that. A lot of fighters, they train to, hey, this guy's not good at grappling. Maybe let me get a takedown, a sweep. Uh, clinch up against the cage, body lock them. Body locks are the things. Don't you know if you're trying to defend it, you don't want them to get a lock on their hand so they have the body lock or an ability to manipulate your weight for a takedown. And you don't see a lot of classic wrestling like go for it. 
attempt after attempt, moving across the octagon, going for broke. I love to see that with these women. And I love to see that in general because you don't see people fully commit. They're worried for guillotines. They're worried about gassing themselves out. Or they're just too much of pansies to keep going for it. Um, which, you know, we'll talk about Movsvara Vloev here in a little bit. But very determined, you know, they went for it. Sometimes if you're throwing a shot, you don't want to throw it at 85%. You got to send it. Put 100% behind that sucker. And that's how I feel about the grappling takedowns. Jillian did a great job of that. Now, Pollyanna landed 33 total strikes, 12 of those significant, a lot on the bottom. So Jillian starts a new winning streak. She moves to 3-2 since 2022. She enters the top 15 at 15 as well. Welcome, Jillian. Welcome, Jasmine. Well-deserved earned rankings in their home country. Poliana extends her losing streak to two. She drops to one and three since 2022. Hasn't been super active on the wrong side of that record. So how about this? Tisha Torres, she got to celebrate Raquel Pennington, her wife. We'll talk about that later. She should be in back into the octagon in the next quarter or so. Give me Jillian Robertson, Tisha Torres in her return fight. I think that would be fantastic. I'm not mad about that one whatsoever. And for Pollyanna, how about a fight with Denise Gomes? <coughs> and this is where the... <coughs> excuse me. This is kind of where the evening got a little weird. We had another Canadian loss, but we had Sean Woodson with a split decision victory over Charles Jordan. And I was bummed about this. You know, I picked Malcolm Gordon, got that fight right, wrong, got the two Canadian women right. I got this fight wrong, so it's already two and two on the evening. And sometimes you want to root for the home country fighters. But yeah, the, the evening kind of took a weird turn after during this fight and after. And it wasn't that this was a bad fight. It's that there were a lot of just tick-for-tap fights, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's good striking. One person hits the other guy with a jab. The other person hits a jab. You get a leg kick. He gets a leg kick. It was just so back and forth. Brutal fights to judge. And it really just comes down to who landed the more significant strikes or the more damaging strikes from the strikes that had landed because the volume of strikes... Fighter to fighter, round to round in a lot of these fights. It was like 20 strikes to 10. Or 20 strikes to 16. 18 strikes to 15. It was very razor thin margins. Now in this fight, there was a ton of strikes thrown. But not a lot of them landed, especially on the Charles side of things. And you have to give credit to Sean. Sean's Woodson's length. His body is just, he looks like an alien, looks like an ape. The length that he has mixed with his boxing acumen, his great striking defense. I mean, Charles was forced to do a lot just to try to get into range to, to actually clip Sean, get some shots to land. And uh, there was a lot of like wild strikes, spinning high kicks, wheel kicks, spinning back kicks, you know, elbows, just unorth unordinary strikes just to try to get something to land. And they looked good, but they were always just a little bit off. Whether Sean was shrugging back, moving, or it was just that Charles couldn't find the range. And when you can't land a consistent jab or a leg kick to find that range because Sean's so long, you're just getting pieced up, it's going to be a long night in the octagon. 
Um, and you can't just sit in the pocket with the guy that's got, I think it was a nine inch reach advantage. You know, you're going to get there and get picked off. I mean, that's the John Jones effect, really. You're going to get teed off. But yeah, he was usually miss, missing his strikes. And Sean missed a fair share of his as well, but he landed solid strikes, clean hit strikes, what you would consider a significant strikes. And for that reason, I gave rounds one and three to Sean. And then I gave round or one and two to Sean, I believe. No, one and three to Sean. And the second one I gave to Charles. And the stacks, stats back that up. Sean landed 31 significant strikes in round one to Charles' 18. Sean landed 28 significant to uh, Charles' 20 22 in the second. And then even the third round, you could technically give that fight to Charles. The strikes landed. But I actually gave it to Sean because he maybe didn't land more strikes in the first two or three minutes. But the strikes he landed were more damaging, more devastating shots. But the last minute, he got the takedown. He got control. He was able to finish the bell with ground and pound. So if you've at least won one of those, or debatably, the first two rounds, and then you finish the fight like that, I mean, you think you're going to win. And then there was the debacle of, I don't know if it was too loud in the arena. They announced Sean as the champion, and Charles celebrated, acted like he was not the champion, as the winner. <clears throat> then Charles celebrated like he had won. They're all excited. Sean's all bummed. And they're like, no, what are you talking about? You won. And, and DC's like, Sean, you won the fight. Super awkward moment. Uh, but statistically, Charles landed 78 total strikes, but he did throw 175, so almost 100 strikes of no, nothing but air. And uh, 60 of those 78 were significant. He was 0 for 4 in takedowns. He spent a lot of energy in round 1 early uh, throughout the first couple rounds trying to get takedowns just to close distance, maybe get on top, work some submissions or some ground and pound, and Sean wasn't having it. Um, Charles also had a submission attempt, and Sean landed 102 total strikes, so, you know, 30 more roughly, which that's going to win you the fight. Out of 193, so he whiffed a lot as well, but not quite as many as Charles. And 80 of those 102 were significant. And then Sean had one takedown and three attempts. Crazy fight. So Sean extends his winning streak to four. That's since 2021. He did have a draw in between. So five fights since 2021. Not super active, but he's won most of them. His only UFC loss was to Julian Arosa. And he lost via Darce Choke submission in the third round. That was a catchweight bout. I think Julian was overweight. Charles now ends his two-fight winning streak and starts a new losing streak. He is 3-3 three and three since 2022. So Sean continues to win. The alien-sized length, big advantages for him. Probably the bigger win that he's had on his resume. And Charles, tough loss for him. He didn't look terrible, just couldn't deal with the range. He's an even 500 since 2022. He's been active, though. He's still young. So what's next for these gents? Well, I, I think an amazing matchup, Sean Woodson, Nathaniel Wood, the prospect. I'd be super pumped for that. That makes too much sense for me. And then for Charles, I mean, this is a tough one, too. How about Jack Shore, who has moved up from bantamweight? That would be another featherweight banger. Love to see it. Another fight and another Canadian fighter goes down that I got wrong. 
We had Garrett arm filled with the unanimous decision over Brad Katona. And I would say this was even a closer fight than the last. I mean, Brad, Brad clearly won the third round, but he waited way too long to be grappling heavy, which I know that could gas you out a little bit. But when he was grappling heavy, he had success with it. He was sitting there trying to box and kickbox Garrett early. And a lot like the Sean version of the Charles fight, Garrett just landed cleaner shots, more damaging shots or significant shots. And they traded a lot of strikes back and forth, but neither guy landed a ton based on volume thrown. But over the course, Garrett, in my opinion, one's easily won round one. Brad easily won round three. The second was maybe a couple strike differences. Let's actually look at what the UFC says was the stat difference. Like round two, I don't know how anyone could try to judge that round. It's like, what What the heck? Let's see. Round two of that fight, we had Brad Katona with 27 total strikes and a takedown out of four attempts. And Garrett Armfield had 41 with no takedowns. Pretty damn close. Anyways, total stats on the fight. Brad landed 76 total out of 172 thrown, so almost 100 air shots as well. 64 of his 76 were significant. He did have four takedowns and nine attempts. So, you know, he still got the takedowns, but he did them late in the round when maybe he should have done it early, try to get more control time. He had four and a half minutes, four minutes and 35 seconds of control time through the three rounds. And Garrett landed quite a bit uh, higher clip. He had 132 or 130 total strikes landed out of 193 total thrown. So he wasn't whiffing as much. And he had a lot more significant. He had 105 significant strikes while Brad had 64. And he was 0 for 1 in takedown attempts himself. So Brad now ends his five-fight winning streak. He starts a new losing streak. He is uh, even 500 at 3-3 three and three in the UFC. Although his UFC record includes two Ultimate Fighter finale fights, so he has only won one time in the UFC that wasn't tough-related. And, you know, obviously he had his tough fights as well. But Brad just fights this style of fight every time. He is a cardio machine. He comes in in good shape. He sits there and exchanges with other good strikers. And it comes down to such a close decision. You got to go for it. And I thought, in Canada, you literally got dumped from the UFC. This is your second chance at life. You're in your prime You'd think you'd fucking go for it. It's like trying to get the promotion. What do I got to do? I am going for it. And I expected that out of Brad against the younger, more experienced Garrett. I thought he was going to try to, you know, a little bit of alpha male him in the octagon. And that was not the case at all. You almost, I mean, um, Brad trains with John Kavanaugh. You'd think, you know, John's like, hey, man, this is where you're at at this stage. You got to look yourself in the mirror. You got to just go for it. Nobody is going to want it more than you. And, you know, Brad's clearly talented. He just, the game plans that I think he has, it's just way too close. You can't leave your life up for the judges all the time. And you don't want to be known for a guy that just gets decision wins or losses anyways. So, yeah, tough night in the office for Canada here before the main card. Now, Garrett, I thought Garrett looked great. I mean, he opened my eyes. I was not that high on him coming in, but his striking was great. He outstruck a very good striker in Brad Katona. 
This division is just stacked, man. The bantamweight and lightweight divisions is crazy deep. I mean, you have these two dudes like in rank 30 in the weight class. Uh, but anyways, Garrett extends his winning streak to two. He is now two and one in the UFC. So what's next? I really would like this fight. I would like Garrett Armfield, Ultimate Fighter, alum and champion, Brady Heistand. Actually, I don't think he was a champion in second place, but Ultimate Fighter finalist, Brady Heistand. But Brady just, Brady just announced that he's going to be out for a while with another knee surgery. So let's put him up against Damon Blackshear. I think that'd be fantastic. And for Brad, he could fight Brian Kelleher. The winner could keep their UFC spot a lot like the Malcolm Gordon-Jimmy Flick fight. Makes a ton of sense to me. Moving on. In the pay-per-view, you got to pay for these fights, baby. We had Movsar Evloev with a unanimous decision over Arnold Allen. This was another fight I got wrong. But golly, I got to address something to start this one. The first thing I want to address is that Dana White said the only loser of this fight was the fans. I could not disagree more at all. I absolutely love this fight. I thought it deserved at least a performance of the night award, 50 G's to somebody's bank account. The high level display of mixed martial arts that these two displayed, fantastic. And this is the UFC, the ultimate fighting championship with mixed martial arts. This isn't the ultimate kickboxing league. This is literally all of the mixed martial arts, including multiple forms of wrestling, grappling, judo, those, those types of martial arts. And oh, by the way, wrestling and grappling is probably a majority martial art being used in the sport, and it always will be. It's a very strategic part and martial art for you to have as a fighter being part of the sport. Dana never talked shit on George St. Pierre, who grappled heavy throughout his career and one of the best of the day. This is the part of Dana that really grinds my freaking gears as the president. He should be supporting his stud fighters like Mozart of Loeb, like he did with Khabib, right? Khabib's going to smash you. How does he smash you? He takes you down and smothers you. That's what Mozart of Loeb is doing. Not only did Mozart put on one of the better, more exciting grappling displays that I've seen when it comes to takedowns and grappling, but he outstruck a badass striker in Arnold Allen. Movsar also showed off when it came to his defense. To be able to avoid the big shots from Arnold, that, that's a big deal. He's just got that quick twitch. You know, he's able to keep his head moving. Um, he also had speed that I did not expect as a striker. His kicks, his strikes. I mean, what he displayed in striking and defense, a massive jump up. His last fight was eight months ago. So let's say... And he fought Diego Lopez, who's now Diego's the guy that he is. On short notice, he was supposed to fight. I can't remember who. But let's say you have a fight. You're a little beat up. You take a, a month of like not really improving. You're just staying in shape. You're, you're maybe hitting some mitts, doing your thing. So in seven months, plus you have a month of preparing of just straight fight camp, four to eight weeks. Let's even say two months to prepare for your opponent, Arnold Allen. Arnold Allen's ranked in the top five. Movsar is looking to get there. This is his biggest test of his life. So I would say he had a two-month two fight camp. So out of those eight months, three of them, one recovering, two prepping for Arnold, the rest of the months is where you really add to your game. 
you can't add to your game in fight camp. You're trying to get in shape. You're trying to study film, come up with a game plan. A month after the fight, you're recovering, trying to get your shit together. Some people celebrate whatever. I doubt Movsar is that guy. Movsar doesn't drink. He's like dedicated to being a UFC champion. And clearly that showed. So the dude's had five months to really improve. What he displayed against Arnold Allen, maybe he's just been holding it back. But I would doubt that because Diego Lopez came in and damn near got a win against him. Really, you know, probably woke him up. Massive display. I am so impressed from what I had seen. Plus, the dude is young. He is barely entering his prime. He turns 30 in February, so he's not even 30 yet. I, I'll state this right now. Mozar Evloev is going to be a USC featherweight champion one day. And I actually think right now he is Alexander Volkanovsky's biggest threat in the UFC when it comes to him, the top five contenders, and who he has to try to defend his title against. That's the dude that Dana White has. What, what is he, 18-0 now? Maybe 19-0? He is... Yeah, 18-0. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight fights in the UFC. You know, his step-ups have gone like Hakeem Dawudu, Dan Ige. It was supposed to be a, a higher fight. He fought Diego Lopez on a short notice. Now Arnold Allen, a world beater. Volkanovski was upset that Arnold Allen fought Holloway. Holloway smashed him because he was excited about the idea of fighting him and what a good prospect he was. Arnold Allen ain't just a regular dude. He's a champion in a lot of past years in the UFC in a lot of weight classes. Movsar did work. And when I talked about UFC grappling, this dude, boom, came out with a quick takedown on Arnold Allen, lifted his leg up. Arnold somehow, his flexibility and ability to stay up is crazy. Went down, tried it again, went down, tried it again. His relentlessness, one, two, three, four attempts. You go for a double, sometimes it doesn't happen. You have to go to the single, then you come in for a body lock, you try to do a leg sweep, then you adjust, you keep going. It's a chain attack. Movsar Evloev, brilliantly mastered that and Dana White said the only loser is the fans you got to back up your athletes man that's just a disgrace if I'm Mozart I mean he's the president he's going to write your checks keep you on the roster you can't cause too many waves but I'm I'm trying to set up dinner with the boss and be like dude what you know what can I do to change your mind about this you know I know that Dana knows that striking in this new era of Casual MMA fans and social media, that doesn't get the clicks, the impressions, I guess. But, dude, this is brilliant performances, brilliant display of martial arts. I'm just mind blown that he even thinks that and that he wants his, his you know, baby in the UFC that he's been a part of for years and helped grown into one of the more popular sports in the world to be known as uh, no grappling, no wrestling, and... If you want to be a UFC champion, you got to have good grappling, good defense. It's, it, there's always going to be an involvement there. So, yeah, rant over. Either way, brilliant fucking display by Mozart Avloev. And Arnold Allen really contested. Like, Arnold had a great fight. He took shots, took a lot more shots than I thought he would. Again, credit Mozart is striking. The, the takedown defense... Not many people are defending the takedowns like Arnold did against a very good attempts that Evloev was throwing at him. Plus the cardio to do that over the course of the three rounds. You know, at the end of the fight, he was really pouring it on. You're like, man, if this was a five-round fight, Arnold Allen might come out as the victor. But it was too little too late in the third round. Mozart already 
easily run one rounds one and round two. I thought this was fantastic. It deserved a bonus and no slander from this end. Bows and TKO's stamp of approval. Brilliant display. Watch it back. Tell me what you think. You know, post this on YouTube. Let me know in the comments what you think. Social medias, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you're at, at Bows and TKO's. I'll be posting the pod tomorrow. Let me know. I know I've seen a little bit of mixed results online, but golly, I'm just shocked. Now, breaking down the stats, Arnold landed 61 total strikes. He threw 143 of them. So whiffed quite a bit on those. 59 of those, 61 were significant. You know, he was thrown with heat. He, was, he knew he needed a finish by round two. He tried. He had a submission attempt as well. Mozart landed 72 total strikes of 141 thrown, and 51 of those were significant. He had five takedowns. And as good as a grappler as this dude is in 17 attempts, not a great ratio. You have to give Allen the credit. He's been working on it. This fight's going to make him better. It's not easy to suffer two losses, but Max Holloway, Mozart Avloev, you can't tell me his fire under his ass has never, never been stronger. I do expect to see a world beater Arnold Allen in the next couple of years. The dude was driving like two and a half hours one way to a gym in the UK. He's spending five, six hours a day his gym didn't have a freaking shower. He was literally showering at truck stops. He told Ariel Hawani on the MMA hour. That's how dedicated he is to training, getting work in, going to the right places. Arnold's not done, I'll tell you that much. But uh, Mozart also had three and a half minutes of control time in this fight. So now he is undefeated, stays undefeated, extends his massively impressive winning streak to 18. Like I said earlier, eight of those are in the UFC. He moves up four spots in the ranking to number five. Arnold extends his losing streak to two. He is two and two since 2022. And he moves down two spots in the rankings to number six. So where does Mozart go from here? I mean, he could fight Josh Emmett. Josh Emmett's up there coming off a win, early knockout. He's really the only guy free in the top of the division. I just don't think that's going to be the next fight. The top of the division's all booked up. Mozart hasn't been the most active. Nobody wants to fight this dude. I don't blame you. I wouldn't be surprised if he lets some of these fights shake out and he fights either Ilya Taporia if, if Ilya loses to Volk or maybe the winner of Yair and Brian Ortega. They say, hey, the winner here, you, you fight Mozart, the winner gets the next title shot. Because in, in my opinion... Is the winner of Yair Ortega the next clear title shot? They've already taken L's by the, you know, Max and, and, and Volkanovski. That doesn't seem interesting. We need some new blood in there. So let the winner fight Mozart. That makes a lot more sense. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, that goes down late February. So the title eliminator fight wouldn't be too backed up. Would make a lot of sense in my book. Either way, no slander for that fight. That was a brilliant performance. A lot better performance than the next few fights we're going to talk about. Tell you that right now. We had Chris Curtis with a split decision victory over Mark Andre Burial. Another loss for Canada. I did get this fight right, though. Mark was the only Canadian fighter I picked against. But this was another just tip for tap boxing showdown. It showcased a ton of defense, a lot of whiff strikes. And I, I believe from memory, Dominic Cruz discussed during the fight. Mark is the power bar. 
means he's a cardio machine. He's going to throw a shit ton of strikes coming at you, and you got to deal with it. He's going to bring more volume. He's going to try to wear on you, and especially when you have action man across the octagon and Chris Curtis, who's a little bit of an older dude, you know, damn near 40, you'd think that would be the case in this fight. And that, I don't know what was in Canada's water that night or what, but this was the least power bar fight I've seen. Now you got to give Chris credit. You know, he is the better technical striker, especially in the boxing department. And that was really the difference in the super close fight. Chris had more significant damaging strikes that landed every round and he stole the, the split decision victory. When you look at the stats, Chris landed 144 total strikes, but he threw 262 attempts. He had 140 of his 144 were significant. While Mark, he only landed 124 total and threw 245. 122 of those 124 significant. So Chris starts a new winning streak. He did have the no contest and the loss. You know it's got to be good to have victory in your mouth after that drama the past year. He now is 3-2-1 since 2022. The action man loves that action. He's been active. Now Chris moves up one spot in the rankings to number 13. And Mark ends his two-fight winning streak. He starts a new losing streak. He is 3-3 three three since 2022. Now a lot of the middleweight divisions booked up as well. I mean, that's a good thing. But Chris, I think, you know, he, he's fought up. He's fought guys outside the top 15. I think he deserves to get another fight in the top 15. Maybe let the division shake out. If I had a pick for Chris right now, I think Andre Mooney's, who's right on the outside of the top 15, that would make a ton of sense. But if he does want to wait to fight up, how about the loser of the upcoming main event, Roman Delidzi and Nasruddin Amavov? I know Chris was booked against Nasruddin at one point in time. That fight, someone pulled out. And for Mark, he could take on Phil Haas. That is, if Phil Haas fights anytime soon, I recommend that he take a year off. You know, if he fights in the UFC again. So if not, how about Abus Megomedov? Moving in, another Canadian fighter goes down in a shocking manner. Another fight I did not pick correctly. We had Neil Magny. With a round three TKO over the young stud, Mike Malott. I mean, <laughs> I wonder what the live odds were after round two. Had to have been as crazy as it gets. I mean, this was a complete domination over the course of two rounds by Mike Malott. He has never had to go late in a fight, and I brought that up last week in the preview. And that shit bit him in the butt. He gassed himself out. And Neil is, I think he was in the Navy before. Like, Neil's a dog. Like, you got to get through Neil. Neil ain't, you know, shy about it. Like, yeah, you got to get through me. I'm not fighting for titles. But he can take the damage. He'll come out aggressive every round. He's going to wear on you. You could wear on him. He's got good jiu-jitsu, good clinch game, solid strikes. And he's got a gas tank for days. That paid off as he was able to get a very, very late finish like, you could almost see the, the ref being like, do I call this fight after this dude just dominate him, or do I give him a chance? But he was just so gassed out. Very, very good win for Neil Magny. You cannot dislike Neil Magny. F Ian Gary and what he said about him as a dad. This is a dude that works. He fights four to five to six times a year. And if I were to ask Neil as a, if I was a friend, 
and ask them honestly, like, hey, Neil, why do you fight that many times? It's probably to make enough money to have the live life that he wants. He's going to put in the work. But, uh, you know, you got to give credit where credit's due. There are a lot of tricks that Neil has as one of the, you know, any veteran in the UFC really can use to their advantage. This will be a big learning lesson for Mike Malott. I don't think he'll be too sour about it. He'll see, he'll understand, he'll get better, work on that cardio. But we got to give Neil Magny a moment in the spotlight. I mean, this dude's been doing it for a long time. You know, let's give him, I'm feeling gracious today, you know? As, as bummed as I was that I lost a parlay on this fight, which, you know, happens too, too often, especially after the first two rounds, this dude since 2022 has fought one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times, three and 23, three and 22, two and 21, three and 20, at least three times a year. He's fought Ian Gary, Mike Malott, Philip Rowe, Gilbert Burns, Daniel Rodriguez, Shavkat Romanov. So whether it's the young up-and-comer or the veteran, Jeff Neal, Michael Chiesa, Robbie Lawler, Lee Jingliang, Santiago Ponzinibbio, Carlos Condit, RDA, Johnny Hendricks, Lorenz Larkin, Hector Lombard, Kelvin Gastelum, Damian Maya. Give me a name he hasn't fought. Tim Means, Rodrigo De Lima. I mean, dudes. The guy's been there, done that. He's going to teach you a thing or two sometimes. And he taught Mike Malott a very important lesson. Now, breaking the stats down, Neil landed 110 total strikes, 57 of those significant. He had a takedown in two attempts, one for two, and had a minute and 47 of control time. Now, Mike landed 100 total strikes, 45 of those significant. He had four takedowns in six attempts, so was getting him what he wanted. And he had six minutes of control time, you know, control at least round one or one full round of control. And round one, in general, there wasn't a ton of strikes thrown. Round two, just to give you perspective, Mike Malott landed 67 strikes, Neil only 18. After he gassed out, plus um, Mike had two takedowns. In round three, Neil had 80, Mike 13, and that was all the ground and pound that got the finish. Crazy, crazy, crazy turn of events. So Neil, he starts a new winning streak. He is four and three. He's consistently exchanged a win for loss. He loses, he wins. He wins, he loses. Back and forth. Now he moves up one spot in the rankings to number 12. And Mike ends his six-fight winning streak, suffers his first loss in the UFC. Brutal again for Canada. Now, a lot of the welterweight division, a lot of, lot of top dudes booked up in these divisions. I think at this point, Neil's going to let the division shake out. I mean, he's deserved to fight up after taking a young stud outside the rankings. He's always fighting. He's always, they probably give him a name. He says, yes, sir. I think the loser of the Vicente Luque, Sean Brady fight, that's the fight for Neil. But knowing Neil, he's not going to wait. He's probably going to fight sooner. I wouldn't be shocked to see him fight a dude maybe like Nicholas Dalby outside top 15 right on the edge. Nice wins. Veteran. That'd be a lot of fun. I'm down for either of those. And for Mike, I'd love to see him fight Alex Murano. I think that's a solid rebound fight for him. Alex, another good uh, young fighter that's really made his waves in the UFC. Coming off a loss. A huge opportunity for both these dudes against each other. 
And the winner of that fight is going to be right at the end of the top 15 again, right back in the fighting of the rankings. So love to see either of those. Brilliant performance by Neil at the end there. And uh, a learning lesson for um, Canada's star, Mike Malott. And then in the co-main event, the Bantamweight Interim Title Championship bout. Your dog pulled through. I knew she would. Raquel Pennington with the unanimous decision over Mayra Bueno Silva. And this was one hell of a cat fight, man. I mean, honestly, I know I, I've seen people online dog it and say, you know, my, my guy Ryan Clark says they should cut the weight class. Hey, they went for it. Fifth, I want to see, you know, I know this is the best of the best in the UFC, but we're talking 25 minutes of just grinding. And, and don't tell me that Raquel wasn't doing work. If she would have just listened to her coaches in her corner and just boxed Myra from round three on, she would have at most, I'm almost positive, got a finish. But every time she got those strikes landed and, and she was is pushing forward, um, she would kind of, I don't know, put herself in just bad spots with grappling, clinching, and allow Myra f to find a way on top or look for submissions or, or be in a grappling fight. Like when you're boxing and teeing someone up, just keep boxing. Why are you going to go into a clinch and wear on her, then get turned over, then get reversed, then get taken down? Why are you going to take her down, get reversed, and then, you know, be in submission situations? I just don't get it. And much like the previous fight, Raquel pushed and exhausted Myra to her limits and further than she's ever had to go. She was completely exhausted, much like Mike Malott through the end of this fight. And the only reason Shitara was in it was because Raquel let her be in it with the grappling exchanges. What a weird situation. I, I know that sometimes you could go in, even a veteran like Raquel, and you kind of black out a little bit. You just go to where your body goes. And I, I feel like this was probably the case. You know, she's a quiet person. She's not big on the microphone, kind of sticks to her own business. Maybe sometimes the nerves get to you. You, you, you like hear your corner, but you don't. You're just kind of lost in the sauce. I'm not sure. Um, but I'm sure she's going to look at the film and be like, man, should have listened to my corner. Now, this will give you a, a good idea of the domination here. In the striking, Raquel landed 265 total strikes, 134 of those significant. She had a takedown in three attempts, two submission attempts, two reversals, and over 11 minutes of control time, so more than two rounds. Now, Mayra landed 96 total, 69 significant strikes. She had three takedowns and nine attempts, three submission attempts, and almost nine minutes of control time herself, so almost two full rounds. So I guess, yeah, she almost had two rounds, and Raquel had two rounds of just control time. Four of the five rounds, someone was in control. From the grappling. So Raquel, not many people know this, but she now extends her winning streak to six. Six of them since 2020. Not the most active of divisions. Plus she had a baby with Tisha. Uh, Myra ends her three-fight winning streak. She starts a new losing streak. You know, technically she had the win against Holly Holm, but that was overturned due to the USADA negative test. So she is now number two in the rankings. I think everybody knows the next will be Raquel and Juliana Pena. And for Myra, a fight with Ketlin Vieira. 
I think that makes the most sense. Two of the best contenders scrap it out. Obviously, things get more interesting uh, with the prospect of Kayla Harrison in the mix, but I do think those will be next. And then the main event. Ricus Duplessis with a split decision victory over Sean Strickland. Fight of the night. I think by the end of the week, it closed as like dead even, but DDP was the at one point like plus 250, plus 225, and I was pretty confident he was going to get the win, and the fight really shook out a lot like I thought it would. I mean, coming in, you saw how Sean put Izzy on his back foot, never let Izzy come forward. You knew DDP is in that style of fighter. He's not a counter-striker, trap-setter that Izzy is. He busts Sean forward, and, and he was the aggressor controlling the octagon and pushing Sean back for majority of the fight. And what a war it was. Like they said all week, like Sean said, they were dick to dick, nipple to nipple, trade for trade, bloody for bloody. And uh, there was some controversy in the decision, but I wasn't a part of that. I thought DDP clearly won the fight. Not only did he land more damaging strikes in the fight, but he also had a ton of takedowns. You know, that does count for something and the rounds to win the rounds. If it's dead even in strikes for three minutes and he gets four takedowns and you barely landed any strikes, I'm going to give the round to DDP. That's part of the game. I gave him rounds two through four, so two, three, and four. You could even debatably give DDP round one. The one thing I did not notice in the fight that I saw later was the accidental clash of heads that Sean said caused the cut, I believe, in round four, maybe round three. Because watching it back, DDP lunges forward. His head hits his, I guess, your orbital area, your cheekbone. And then he came in with like a hook. You can't even tell. It was so cl close in the pocket. Was it a hook? Was it an elbow? But he came in because, you know, DDP, he's throwing. He's coming in. He just got straight shots like Sean. So he was ducking, coming in. Boom, hit him with the head. And I'm pretty sure a fist or an elbow landed, but it's so hard to see the things happen so fast. Um, and I didn't realize that there was a clash of heads. I thought he landed a nasty right hook, and that was the shot that had uh, Sean all bloodied and cut. But Sean was saying he couldn't see. He's not a, a wussy for you know backing out of the fight or telling the doctor he can't see. But let's say you know it was the case. I still give the fight to DDP. You know, if it wasn't the, the headbutt and that hook didn't land and cause any damage, which, I mean, how does Sean know? He's, he, you know, you're not going to know in the moment in round minute freaking 20 or 25 or minute 16 or 25. You know, you're not going to have the wherewithal. You can't even see on the replay, but whatever. I mean, I guess you could feel if it's someone's head or hand, but he still landed the shot there. Let's say he did land the shot and Sean couldn't see. Now you kind of understand, but still... DDP was the aggressor. He landed the bigger strikes. He controlled the octagon and got takedowns at will. You know, Sean, everyone talks about how good Sean's wrestling is. Well, don't get freaking taken down. But Sean did land a lot of jabs. Big, nasty, beautiful jabs. And uh, DDP was feeling it. You could see it on his eyes. He had a nice little shiner. But the shots just didn't have the power that DDP had. And even though Sean wore the damage better, you knew that uh, Dracus was landing. And that's why I gave him the fight. He is a dog. Now he's got his nose fixed. He's shown that he could go with the volume that he did over the course of five rounds. That's insane. 
we'll we'll talk about the stats. The the mix of takedowns and strikes landed by a guy that big. Most people aren't doing that. This guy never doesn't cease to amaze. He deserved that strap. The first South African champion. Now, statistically, Sean landed 183 total strikes. He threw 419. That's not typical for Sean to miss that many strikes. Out of his 183, 173 of those were significant. While Duplessis landed 140 total, so about 43 less. He only threw 358, so didn't throw as much. And out of his 140, 137 of those were significant. And he had six takedowns in 11 attempts. So again, better than 50%. I mean, when he wanted to take down, he got it. And he ha- only had two minutes of control time. I know that was the debate. Well, he didn't do a ton with them. But he was up against the cage a lot controlling the fight. So that's not considered control time. You know, if, if technically I'm up against the cage, I have a body lock, or I'm in on a single, and I get you down, and there's an actual technical takedown, all of your limbs are down, I'm in control. Then you get up against the cage and you're, you're trying to break my hands. Well, if I'm sitting here up against the cage, boom, boom, smashing you while you're trying to get up, boom, boom, for two minutes, that's winning the fight. Sure, the control time wasn't there, but he was still piecing him up and controlling on him. Boom, boom, he hit him big, boom, get the takedown up against the cage, ground and pound. He was doing the thing, man. Now the champion, Dracus, extends his winning streak to nine. Seven of them coming in the UFC. Sean ends his three-fight winning streak and starts a new losing streak. He is four and three since 2022. So Sean is now the number one contender. The storylines and the beef. The UFC has to book DDP and Israel Adesanya. UFC 300, I think, would be ideal. But I don't know if that's possible. I don't know if Izzy's ready to, to rush into it. DDP didn't want to get rushed for the Izzy fight. He got healthy, just fought Sean, first time doing five five rounds. He's been partying like a rock star on social media. Damn, can this guy chug a beer? Um, I I just don't (laughs) logically think either dude's going to be ready for UFC 300. Unless they offer him such crazy money, they're like, fuck it. Um, If it isn't Izzy DDP at 300, though, I do think Izzy's going to want that fight. I mean, it's a chance for his title back. Um, Unless he doesn't want it, but I I just don't think that's going to be the case. There's a bunch of bad blood between these men. Izzy wants what he thinks is his. So I think that's going to be next. I just don't know if it'll be 300 or not. And for Sean, I think Kamzat Chemaev is the fight to make. The problem is, and, and Chemaev's been posting this on socials. He was interviewed by Brett Okamoto. He knows Chemaev, or Chemaev said that he's not happy with, with Dana and the team right now and the UFC brass because after he beat Kamara Usman, once they both went up, he was promised the title fight next. Um, but I just, DDP Izzy makes a lot more sense. You know, Kamzat's had one fight in the division. I know he's on a whatever fight winning streak, but I think you give him one more, really see if he's ready. The eliminator fight can be Strickland, Chemayev. Strickland can get a rematch or fight Izzy again, and Chemayev wins, he's in. So give me Strickland, Chemayev, Israel Adesanya, Dricus Duplessis, and his first title defense. But that was UFC 297, Canada, rough night in the office, two and six for the Canadian fighters. 
You know, I backed them quite a bit, bit me in my pickums. I was five and five. Um, the biggest takeaway to me was Dreykus is going to be a problem. He's weird. He's different, but he is a massive dude for the weight class and he can go for five rounds. That's a problem. I'm excited about these new UFC 300 fights. Kayla Harrison in the UFC. Um, yeah, and, and then also Mosara Vloev. Watch out. This kid is going to be a champion. I do not doubt it whatsoever. Another weekend off. Bummed about it, but oh well. Enjoy some championship NFL on Sunday. And then next Saturday, February 3rd, we have a decent Apex event headlined by Roman Delidzi. Nasser Dinamavov. We also have the road to the UFC season two finale um, and finals. But then we can rejoice as fight fans. 11 consecutive weeks of UFC action. We got the PFL Supercard bout, ADCX action, more grappling action. That's episode 32. I'm your host, Shane Gillette. See you next week. Peace. <laughs>